first have to just ask you what it's like to be at the center of a national controversy because you were in the middle of law school. I think you were getting ready to graduate. You're in your last semester, yeah. and you find yourself you're you're talking to Tucker Carlson. You're talking to the New York Times. You're just you're sort of in the middle of this firestorm, kind of I think out of nowhere. I don't think you were expecting this to be a very controversial event. So, just what's kind of what was your mindset like in the aftermath of all of this? What's it been like just on a day to day basis dealing with this while also trying to finish up law school? It's been it's been strange. I think day to day. I'm never, I'm never quite sure what to expect. So when this actually went down, when the judge showed up and there was this big ruckus, I thought, well, I think this is a big deal. I didn't think like as big of a deal as it turned out to be, but I thought it was like uh, you know, someone will remark upon this deal. And uh, the day after, you know, the campus newspaper didn't cover this, right? Of course. Uh, it, just, it just sort of happened and no one cared. And I thought, wow. You know, maybe this isn't that big of a deal after all. And then within about 48 hours, uh, a few Twitter accounts had sort of put up a video of part of the event and then started to get some traction. And then by the weekend, you know, by the end of the weekend, we had the first letter from the dean of the law school. And you could tell things were sort of happening. And uh, then things moved very quickly. Uh, first, Megan Kelly's team uh, found me and they said, we let come on. And I said, sure. And then I ended up being on Tucker that night. Um, and even that was sort of funny. Like I showed up, uh, they have this little studio they use uh, down by the JCC in Palo Alto. And my friend and I went and, you know, I just put on a suit and showed up at the studio and it had a bunch of other people doing hits, but they were all talking about Silicon Valley Bank, right? It was okay. the same time Silicon Valley Bank was going on. So I was here talking about this other weird thing. Uh, and, you know, it still seemed like just not that big of a story, right? Like Silicon Valley Bank was going under and this was going to have implications for all these people. And it seemed like this story was even then sort of a small story would last about a day. Uh, and then, you know, we go forward a few days and federal government bailed out Silicon Valley Bank basically. And, you know, it turned out it wasn't that big of a deal for anybody unless you were like an executive at Silicon Valley Bank. It turned out it wasn't going to be a big problem. And so that story has just disappeared. And this one is sort of festered, right? Uh, the deans put out like another, a much longer statement and that sort of picked up people's imaginations again. Um, we've had another judge visit us. Uh, this judge didn't get protested, but that, that sort of got some people interested. And so uh, the story's had some, you know, some, some low simmer. I think the other, you said what it was like to be in the center of it. You know, I was not sure. Um, I'm also, I also serve, uh, I run a church, I'm a vicar at a church here, and I kind of didn't know how people would would respond to it, if at all. And for several weeks, even after the Tucker Hats, just like no one mentioned it. It's a very progressive church, right? I don't think they'd be super excited about me being on Tucker. And yeah. uh, then some people did, right? But even that, you know, like random people from back home have seen it, but I get the impression, you know, most people haven't seen this at all. So um, it's just with each piece of it, like, I did an interview with the New York Times and it didn't come out for two weeks. So I just assumed, you know, okay, they have better things to cover, but then it did come out. And then some, you know, I got some messages from like, oh, I saw you in the Times. And like, it was Easter Sunday. So I was doing other things. So, you know, I didn't, didn't read the paper that day. So uh, it's been sort of a funny experience. It's funny when you mentioned like sitting in the room with the other guests getting ready to, to do their hits on Tucker. Like, are you guys, I, I picture a jail cell. Like, are you sitting there looking at each other? Like, Hey, what are you here for? What are you here for? Do you, are you talking to the other guests and, and, or is it more like a job interview? Are you guys kind of keeping yourself and like planning what you're going to say? 
Yeah, so the cool thing about this is, um, you know, it's like rent a studio in Palo Alto, so it's all the networks are using it. Uh, so I think I was the only one there for Tucker, uh, but it's people doing any show, right? Any show that's happening, if they're going to a studio and they're in Palo Alto, this is apparently where they get sent. Um, so it was very clear that everyone else there was there to talk about Silicon Valley Bank, right? And they couldn't really quite tell what to make of me. A little too young, uh, but, you know, they didn't really know. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was um, there's a little waiting area. You know, there's a restroom and they have a water cooler. And, yeah, it's pleasant. So I, I think most people at this point who are listening to this know the story or they can look it up very easily. So I don't want to get sure. too into like the basic details, but can you just briefly, maybe for people who don't know, just explain exactly what it was that happened, you know, from your perspective, of course. Yeah. So, so how, how quick do you want me to be? Like uh, whatever, whatever three? feels natural for you, whatever, okay. however, however detailed you want to get. Yeah. So um, I'm the president of the Stanford Federal Society. Uh, we invite a number of speakers, and one of our speakers, the actually concluding speaker for our last quarter, was uh, Judge Kyle Duncan. Judge Duncan's a judge on Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So he came to speak. Uh, we knew a couple days in advance there would be some kind of protest, but we didn't really understand what that would be. And what that ended up being was this huge gauntlet of people uh, as he was walking into his room that sort of chanted at him and shouted at him and then ultimately prevented him from speaking. So took over the room, uh, shouted him down, made it impossible for him to speak. After a significant period of time, like 15-ish minutes of this, um, one of the deans from Stanford stepped in and uh, gave her own little speech about how the judge's past decisions have been harmful uh, and, you know, are sort of unwelcome, but then told him he was welcome to speak. And at that point, you know, his time was about half over. Uh, he went right into a Q&A that sort of devolved quickly too. And then uh, federal marshals took him out of the room along with uh, me and a few other people. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was, and, it was a debacle. And it was, you know, Federalist Society, all sorts of different student groups at law schools. They invite speakers onto campus all the time. This is a normal thing. This was a, a circuit court judge, which is one step below the Supreme Court. This is a big, even for a school like Stanford, where I'm sure you guys get a ton of, of high-level speakers, this is still sure. a big deal to have someone at that level come and speak to campus. Was there a particular reason why you you asked this judge to speak, other than the fact that he, he is a circuit court judge? Was it like, were you expecting you know, the fact that, oh, he said some controversial things in the past that this is going to stir up, that this is going to cause, at least bring some attention to the event. Or were, were you just expecting, hey, we're going to have a circuit court judge here. This is, that alone is cool enough. Yeah, we invite a fair number of judges. Uh, we've actually had two more come since that event. And I'm grateful to them for coming. This, all, all the judges remaining on our calendar, or many, many of them, got in touch with us and were like, hey, what's going on at Stanford? What do I really want to come visit? Um, we, we sort of balance when we make the schedule every year. We want some judges who are people we think of as like friends of our chapter. So either people who either went to Stanford or uh, hire clerks from Stanford really consistently, or for some other reason have a really tight relationship with our chapter. And so about half the judges we invite every year are in that category. And then the other half, we try to get people we haven't heard from very much. And uh, within that group, we look for people who have an interesting perspective. The reason why we want to judge Duncan is we always like to hear from people from the Fifth Circuit uh, because it's the Fifth Circuit. So the Fifth Circuit covers Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana. Uh, all of the interesting affirmative litigation on the right tends to go through the Fifth Circuit. Uh, we live in California. That's the Ninth Circuit. 
all of the interesting affirmative litigation on the left tends to go through the Ninth Circuit. So we also like hearing um, from Ninth Circuit judges. But Fifth Circuit, um, it's a bit further. It's a bit remote. You know, the judges' chambers are in Baton Rouge. That's not like a, an easy easy place to get tempered. So we were really happy he agreed to come visit us. And uh, he was actually the first person we locked into the calendar this year. So he'd been invited way like in May of 2022. So you said you had expected that there were going to be, there were some rumblings that there were going to be protests. What do you mean by that? What were you hearing? What were you expecting? Yeah, so I got an email. There was actually an email sent to our entire board. So presidents of the board. And it came, it was uh, signed by a list of students and it said, uh, we we don't want this judge at our campus. I'm paraphrasing. We don't want this judge at our campus. Uh, we think you should move him off campus or move him on to Zoom, right? And this has come, I get this, like the weekend before a Thursday event. So this guy's flying in from Baton Rouge, and apparently the demand here is sort of uh, tell him, thanks for coming in from Baton Rouge. Let's all grab lunch. Now you can go back to your hotel room and get on a Zoom link, uh, and we can hear your speech. So we, we weren't going to do that. And so I responded and I said, um, like sort of bucket one, um, you know, this event will be happening, but we always have a Q&A and you're welcome to come to that. Bucket two, based on the tone of this email, it seems like the objectionable thing is being in the judge's presence or that his presence for violence, like, you know where this event is. So, um, you know, absent yourself that day if that's uh, going to be an issue. And uh, I'd all, already been in touch with a lot of these people and said, you know, I'm happy to talk with anyone at any time. So, happy to talk. But nobody nobody took me up on that. And so then uh, I met with Student Affairs on Tuesday. So again, the event was Thursday. I met with Student Affairs. And we were already having a meeting because we are planning a big conference. And um, just sort of appended to this meeting about the conference was, hey, what's going on Thursday? And um, we were all sort of in agreement that this didn't seem like it was going to be that big of a deal, right? I, I sort of anticipated there would be a good number of people who showed up for the event who were not there because they wanted to hear about Twitter and gun regulation, uh, which was what the judge was there to talk about. But I thought, you know, maybe people would have a walkout or maybe people would ask some sort of weird questions or maybe people would have, you know, maybe have signs or shirts or something. Um, but then that, that wasn't quite how it went. Uh, it got, it was a lot bigger by Thursday. And so the Federal Society, just so we can explain to the non-legal people, it's a group of conservative and libertarian law students and lawyers and judges. This giant group has been around for decades that, yeah. again, like we said, we bring they bring on speakers on the campus all the time. And you, we know at most law schools, even at, at Notre Dame, which is a Catholic law school that I went to, Federal Society is not very popular in terms of mm. in, relative to the rest of the, the legal law student population because these schools tend to be more people from the left and so you're you're kind of fighting an uphill battle almost every time you're, you're bringing a speaker on but have you ever had anything any type of protest with any kind of speaker before this i know nothing that rose to this level but anything small oh yeah i mean we we have we have had protests before um but they they've sort of been undisciplined right it, it's been something like i've described where people would have a walkout they would. We had, you know, a really weird thing my one L year where a student kissed at a judge, and you know, there have been some sort of weird things, but nothing like this where a group, you know, a organized group basically took over an event, and um, so this this is a new strange thing. And it's it's funny you use the word undisciplined when you're referring to the other protests. I would use that word for this one because I listened to. 
David Latt posted the, the full audio of the event. I, I don't know if he was the original one to post it, but that's where I, I listened to it. And just listening to these protesters, uh, you know, it sounds hyperbolic when I say I it you sound you think you're listening to a room of 12 year olds because mm-hmm. the way they are are shouting just just nonsense at him. And, and they start, you know, some of the audio was hard to hear. hear it's hard to hear what they're reacting to. But the the cackling that you hear, it, it really I, I, I should share the link. I will share the link in the show notes to, to David Latt's audio because there's no way of me to explain it without it sounding hyperbolic. Just the the lack of any kind of rational, mature argument that they had. I mean, this wasn't a protest where they're, you know, they're, they're standing there, they're holding up signs. They have reasonable arguments uh, against him. I mean, even, even if they had reasonable arguments and they're disrupting the event, that violates Stanford's code. That violates just general mm-hmm. principles of free speech. But you could at least not be embarrassed. I felt like this embarrassment listening to the audio, felt this embarrassment for them in the the immaturity of how they were responding. And so you were in the room, obviously, when this was happening. What were you doing during while this is all going on? Like not not a whole lot. Uh, you actually can see me in the video. I'm like in front of wherever this person's filming from. I mean, this like black leather coat. Um, you know, I had no idea what to do. Uh, I walked in with the judge and then this thing, you know, I did his introduction and it just, you could tell it was not good. And um, I thought someone from the school would step in. At one point I like get up to try to wander up to the podium and he sort of was like, no, I got this. I go sit back down. But um, yeah, it was pretty ineffective. Yeah. Yeah. You, you could tell like you're trying to just kind of power through and, and be professional. I didn't see this when I was in school. You know, you saw protests, but everything that I kind of went through was was reasonable. It was protests where, where people were standing there and they, they said what they wanted to say. And I never had an event get disrupted when I was in school. I never had anything like that. So I, I feel like I'm the old man now. I'm like, what, what are these kids doing? Where are they learning this? But yeah. from your perspective, where are they learning this? Because this is I mean, we're talking about Stanford Law School, which is. I'm sure most people, I'm sure, are aware of of the how prestigious it is, but is it's up there with you know Yale and Harvard as the top law schools in the country. Training, yeah, it, it training just pre- got number one. It yeah, just, that's it's, it's I, I saw that. So one, Stanford so. is the the number yes. one law school officially, according to to U.S. Yeah. News, the the number one rankings. And so you're training Supreme Court justices. You're training people for the highest levels of government, for the highest levels of corporate America, and. The way that they reacted, and are you? Do you know that these were actually Stanford law students? I know um, some of these other events yes. have gone disrupted. It's been outside people. Did, no, these no, were, these, these were our students. Um, did you know them? Did you know that them like individually before this? Like some of them, yes. A lot of them, no. You know, it's sort of a weird thing that I'm really like a four L. Uh, I'm a JD MBA. Okay. I've been kind of at the business school uh, for a bit, and. Um, the COVID pandemic really decimated our membership. Uh, you know, the people the people who were one L's during that COVID year really didn't. If 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 you raise your hand and you can form a community, you can have a FedSoc chapter because people sort of find fellow travelers and are sort of okay. Um, with them, they were on Zoom for like an entire year, and so there are like two people in that 3L class. And so I was sort of brought out of storage to come be president. And uh, I've had a lot of fun doing it until this went down. But uh, you know, really probably shouldn't be the president because I like wasn't really in this class and it, it's sort of a weird thing. 
Um, but anyway, so a lot of people, like, I sort of know of more than I know. Like, I'm like, I've seen this person right. before, so I know that they actually go to law school here or at least have been living in our lounge for several months. Uh, but um, there were only, like, a handful of people with whom I had real relationships. So, like, where do you think that's learned? Again, we're talking about... I think a couple things. I mean, one, something I don't think is captured maybe a lot of Lance Audio is that, like, it felt scary. And I don't want to sound, like, snowflake-ish or, sure. or wimpy, uh, because, you know, on the one hand, the people who made up this mob were not, like, you know, big, scary people. Like, certainly, you know, Judge Duncan is, like, seven feet tall. He was much taller than any of the individual protesters. Uh, I probably had, like, 15 pounds on, you know, any of the protesters, you know, significantly larger. Uh, but there were so many of them, right? There were so many of them, and they were just so unhinged. And, uh, you know, it started out as, like, cheering about, you know, sort of like middle school cheers, like, hey, ho, ho, Duncan's got to go or something. I mean, you know, and then they were maybe a little edgier than that. But then we had people yelling some pretty sick things at him. Uh, and just the, the feel in the room was that, you know, it, it felt like we were coming up on some sort of sacrifice or something. Um, it really was, uh, you know, if you read Rene Girard and his whole thing of the mob, I think there's something that's not even learned. It's probably like an innately human thing that you can just get swept up in the mob. And um, I think very few of the people in that group could have told me. I think very, very few of them could have told me with any great specificity why they were there at all. And I think a good number of them who could have said something sort of broadly applicable, like, you know, homophobe or racist or something like that, um, you know, would have probably said that about anybody if I talking about it. So, so, you know, I think it was just this sort of thing that fed on itself. Um, I think a... the, the underlying thing of the childishness you talked about is this is the thing now. If you do sort of activist lawyering, there's this emphasis on getting rid of respectability, right? You don't want to be respectable because this whole idea of Law is going to be one of these old, old-timey professions, like being a priest or a doctor. Uh, that's you know exclusionary, and it prevents you from being an activist. And so you should be an activist lawyer, and that means you know uh, throwing a fit, and yeah. you know because that's good. You know that shows you really, you really are an activist. You're you know with the people. You're not uh, co-opted by these bourgeois values. But it, it goes. What they did goes so far beyond that because you you can even you can at least wrap your head around the argument that hey we're trying to to go around the system and and we don't want to to be the the stodgy suit wearers and okay okay i i can accept all that but the again I, and there's no way i can put it to work people just have to watch it and listen to it the the way that they're they're reacting and just the what they're shouting just is 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 nonsense and they're they're laughing and i think that's where you're right when you start talking about the mob mentality because you see they're just having fun with each other at that point I think they don't even care about what it is they're protesting or what it is they stand for. It's just it becomes fun to disrupt an event. And that's where you need the university to come in and just say, hey, this you're just you can't do this. You have to say we have certain principles. And if you want to be at this university, you have to uphold these principles. And that's where the university, I think, failed in in the moment. I mean, was there even was there campus security there? Uh, no. So this was, you know, another wrinkle that, in hindsight, was a bigger deal than I thought it was. I got an email from Student Affairs the morning of the event, and they said, uh, you know, the the group from Outlaw, 
Muslim outlaws, one of the constituent groups of the protest, had asked that we not have campus police present uh, because it's threatening to them and threatens their safety. So just so you know, we're not going to have them present. Um, but they'll be like nearby. We have to call them. And I haven't had campus security at any event this yeah. year. So I thought, well, I mean, okay. You know, I, I, I'm not sure why I'm getting this email, but that <laughs> being clear that this is a very bad thing. And maybe they knew something I didn't know about the scale of what was coming. And we really, really did need campus security there. So you mentioned that the, the dean of, of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion at, at Stanford stood up and gave a talk. And I actually – you had mentioned to the New York Times that you had actually, before this event, had a decent relationship with her that she had talked yeah. about wanting to bring conservatives and veterans into this idea of diversity, that she actually helped you with an event with Nadine Strawson, who actually – I want to talk about that event, actually, because sure. she, she was a, a guest on the show, and I'm a big fan of Nadine. Uh, so – was it, how, how what kind of relationship did you have with that dean before this event? Yeah, I mean, I think we had a reasonably good relationship. Um, you know, there were definitely things we wanted from that relationship that didn't quite ever happen, but it was not like a you know, we have had people we just had bad relationships with who just seemed to be out to get fed sock, and we didn't feel that way with her. Um, you know, we've talked about there's sort of these categories of groups at Stanford, you're either an interest group like the anime club or you are an affinity group like Outlaw, and FedSoc feels very strongly it should be an affinity group, and it gets grouped in with like the anime club. And this has implications for like your money and sort of what you, what you could do. And, uh, you know, we, we had gone to uh, Dean Steinbach several times and we would like to be an affinity group, and that never happened, right? So, you know, there's sort of that sort of wrinkle. Um, we did get along reasonably well, and with this Nadine event, um, we knew that she was going to come for several months, and we looked for somebody who would be a good interlocutor for her. And uh, we just had no takers, no takers, no takers. And um, Dean Steinbach agreed to do it, right? And so she showed up and she did it. Now, the day of the event, you could tell something weird had happened because we had publicized this event as, you know, uh, Dean Strauss and Dean Steinbach. And so Dean Steinbach began her remarks. We didn't record this or anything, but I, I think, don't think she would dispute my characterization. She began her remarks by saying, with this like big preamble, it was like, I am here today because I will come to any group, you know, any student group, and I don't have the hubris to think that my showing up for something platforms it or gives it legitimacy. And so I just want to be very clear that my being at a FedSoc event does not mean that I think FedSoc is a legitimate group or, you know, that I co-sign anything it believes. And um, it was sort of like a, a strange thing. Right. Right. It was sort of a strange disclaimer to load on the front. But regardless, she did show up. She did do the thing. Uh, we had, you know, Adam Mortara come this past week and we had a uh, faculty member agree to give a response to him. And then, like, you know, they agreed pretty late. Like, they agreed on, like, Friday to come give a response to him. But then by Sunday, they said, oh, I have a scheduling conflict on second thought. I can't come. Right. So, you know, I will say, Steinbach is the only, the only person besides our advisor so far this year who has shown up and participated in it. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to give a lot of credit to that because, you know, like you said, yeah. I mean, there's so many people say that they're on that side of the argument, but they're afraid to actually stand up and, and debate someone on it. So you got to give yep. her credit for that. So then kind of you had introduced Judge Duncan. I think he had talked for a few minutes and eventually he had asked 
because he was just getting shouted down so much, he said, can, mm-hmm. can some administrator from Stanford step in and, mm-hmm. and handle this? So it was Dean Steinbach, the head, the head of diversity, Stanford Law, stepped up and she had had, I guess, prepared remarks, which were you expecting her to have prepared remarks? Because she wasn't expected to talk at all, right? No, no, I was not. Um, and I wasn't expecting you know, there were five administrators in the room. It was not my expectation that she was going to be the one to intervene. Um, there was maybe a bit of a clue that, you know, as we were walking in, she said to me, Tim, if you need me, let me know. And I just sort of stared at her like, what are you talking about? Right. And uh, she said, you know, I have lots of training in de-escalation. I said, okay. Um, okay. Right. Um, not, that's not, that's sure ominous. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, so I'm not sure why she was the one that still yeah. sort of unclear to me, but it did seem like that was like a pre-written thing. And then uh, she read it and uh and and her statement basically she kept saying is the juice worth the squeeze meaning you know just the fact that he was there and causing such a a, a commotion on campus was it worth him even being there and speaking and then also kind of saying she supports anyone being there speaking like you said she was she was kind of talking off both sides of her mouth a little bit but basically was Mm -hmm. denouncing him being there uh so I mean that then that makes the entire situation awkward, right? Because then are you sort of thinking while she's talking, like, what do we do next? Well, I I just was, I, I you know I thought what we need to do next was just shut this thing down. Yeah. Like this was clearly not gonna. And I said, you know, it felt you hear this sort of laughing, but it felt scary. It was yeah. sort of the we we had about twenty minutes of him being unable to speak, and the energy was rising, and so you kind of wonder what comes next. Right, like it, it wasn't apparent where this was going to go, and it did not de-escalate. Like that, that did not happen. Um, yeah, I, I know what to make of it. Right. So then, so then Judge Duncan gets up there, and I, I think that you guys just decided, or not, not you guys. I think he just said, let's let's just try to take some Q and A at that point. And again, it really right. was. Go ahead. He, he, he was supposed to talk for half the time and then do Q&A for half the time. So we were into the Q&A half at that point. Right. You know, the, there's this sort of revisionist version. It's like, oh, we could have given a speech then. But like, he was supposed to Q&A. He was going to go do the Q&A. Um, so, yeah. 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 And it was just kind of more of the same during the Q&A session. And, but it was interesting because the judge was kind of trying to give it back to to some of the students, to some of the protesters. Mm-hmm. He, he He wasn't... I, you know, I guess he could have walked away or he could have just tried to issue some very kind of political remark, but he was trying to give it back to them a little bit and and, I, and trying to rationalize with them a little bit and just wasn't getting anywhere. I mean, how do you feel he handled it? Should Do you think he should have done, looking back now, should he have done it differently? I want to actually back up to one thing. To that Steinbach speech, I think that was as much directed as at us, us, the Federal Society, oh, as at him, because we would have been told earlier in the week, like on Tuesday, you know, you can revoke the invitation. You're in the student group. Uh, and it's like, you, you know, the only reason why someone can come is because they're invited by a student group. But the point being made was that, you know, you, if, you, if you're a good community member, as FedSoc, you should be very, very cautious about who you're inviting. And uh, by implication, you shouldn't have invited this guy. And it's like, you know, this is a Fifth Circuit judge, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't think of a list of people I might have been sort of amused to invite. Uh, if I were like a troll, but like we didn't invite those people, right? We invited a Fifth Circuit judge, and so it, it's sort of it's sort of an outrage to put this on us and say, well, you're the bad actors in this community by inviting people who are not worth the squeeze, right? Like you need yeah. to hear about Twitter so much, you need this guy who's 
presence as violence to be here. And I hadn't heard that part. I you know I've, I did a lot of background on on all these events. I hadn't heard that part about them telling you, mm-hmm. "Oh, you can uninvite him," which to me that's almost as insidious as the protest itself as is the the administrators coming down on you and saying, "Hey, we really don't want you to have this guy." And you're or or you can move it, right? Like if you guys it's your decision if you want to have this off campus. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's like there, there's there's a creepiness to that, which is you're are, now. Are you saying you won't protect us if there is some violence that breaks out? Are you like what? What's the entire implication of what you're trying to say in that in that little that little phrase of of hey, it's it's up to you guys. Well, certainly anything anything the administrators have to do to either enforce order or to enforce some sort of consequences later, they can turn around and point Petzlock and say, you know, we have to do this because these Cretans in your class yeah. invited this horrible man here. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, I, I don't know that that's quite quite the way to back us up. So you said that, you know, Judge Duncan eventually did have to get escorted out. Uh, be, yeah. because it, like you said, I'm, I, I, you know, just you, you see the videos of any of these things where you just have dozens and dozens of of these protesters, and like you said, when you're in that mob mentality, who knows what people are capable of? So I'm, I, I don't think it's, I think people can understand when you say that it it was scary, and it makes sense that he had to be escorted out. What? So in the in the direct aftermath, that after he gets escorted out, what do you do? I walked out with him. Uh, so I felt a little bad. I mean, I, I, you know, perhaps not the most courageous thing. Like he, uh, a guy from the community who's like a nonprofit lawyer, who's a friend of his, uh, and me, we all went out with these two marshals and we walked out into this like alley and the marshals put him in a car and drove off. And then I was just standing here with this guy and it was like, okay. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, the mob just sort of descended on the remaining FedSoc people and like gauntleted them out and yelled at them as they were leaving. Um, you know, the ratio was very off. I mean, it was a, a large number of a large number of rioters to like people there to hear about Twitter. So, um, yeah, it was not great. Have you heard from the other FedSoc members about, like you said, you're you're kind of a 4L, you're, you're one foot off campus at this point, but these other students who have to be in class with these these kids every day, how what's kind of their their interaction been? I mean, their interactions have been pretty bad, right? Like in the immediate aftermath, uh, one of my board members got screamed at by somebody from the riot, you know, was screamed at. Uh, like several days later, but was like, you know, across across the quad and was told like, you should resign, you know, you should resign and stick stand and get about how horrible, particularly my leadership have been. Um, you know, our wells are a bit more isolated. It's sort of balkanized people though. Either people have said, you know, I'm really committed to, to being in FedSoc and our number technically are like, you know, people who are members have gone up, um, but are sort of casual, People who are open open to hearing hearing the arguments, but not all bought in, have sort of dropped in yeah. a big way. There's some some hostility. Um, another big thing, you know, we have to pick our new board in about a week, and I hear from a lot of a lot of the underclassmen. I'm not quite sure I want to do whatever that was, right? Like if being on the board is inviting some people and having some events, I'm for it. I'm excited about it. Um, but if being on the board is like being this lightning rod of meanness, um, 
maybe not. You know, I'll, I'll come to the lunches. I'm not going to be on the board. That's, I was going to ask you that because when I was in school, the vast majority of students, they're there to to get a job. They're, they're kind of just trying to, to toe the line and get the best paying job they can get when they graduate. And maybe they'll join FedSoc or, or American Constitution Society, which is kind of the liberal version of FedSoc. And they'll, they'll go to events, they'll do this. But most people, if there were, again, I didn't go through any big controversies like that, but I think if there had been, most people would have dropped off and just been like, I don't, I'm just trying to graduate law school and get a job here. Do you, does it seem like at Stanford now, do you feel like there's a high percentage of people who are there to be activists or is it still kind of like the vast majority of people just don't want to get their hands dirty and, and yeah, I think it depends on students. I mean, you know, not to, not to get too cocky about my role in this, but I think part of why this story got played was because, you know, when Megan Kelly called, I would go on yeah. and I'm not clerking and I'm not going to a big law firm. Right. right? And everyone in this seat before me, uh, you know, in recent memory, has done those things. Yep. And so I'm not sure that they would have had this sort of burn all the bridges uh, attitude I've had about this um, just just by happenstance, right? It just happened. You know, I happen to be the president this year, and I'm not going to a big law firm. I can't imagine, like, in a new associate class, you know, would you have a fun time if you were one of the, you know, 40 new associates at KE uh, Chicago and you show up and, you know, you're the one who was on Tucker Carlson. I, I think you'd probably have a really, a really rough go of it. Um, so I, I think that that is, you know, on the right. I think people are not generally wanting to be activists. Our membership pretty much does clerking and law. Uh, maybe they do government service, but that still is not something really compatible with this type of activism. Uh, because we're Stanford, we have a few people who don't really properly do law, right? We have some people who go do uh, like tech stuff, right? We have a couple of those every year uh, within the federal society. Um, but most people are doing something pretty conventional. Now, the broader law school certainly is getting more of an orientation towards uh, public law, activism, teaching, things like that. And, um, you know, that group, I think, uh, it turns out you can be as much of an activist as you want on the left, and you can still exactly. go to the big Some big law firm will take you. It turns out, you know, at Stanford, you can only be an activist on the left, barely pass, right? I mean, it turns out you cannot fail. Like, if you show up a certain amount of time, you will get a passing grade. And uh, so I know by anecdote, there are people who, like, do not do better than pass in anything across three years and get jobs in big law. And it's sort of like, well, you know, you might as well just spend three years sort of agitating. Um, you know, maybe that's even part of what caused this, right? If you, you don't need to be focused on your studies, you can you have a lot of time to, uh, to protest. Yeah, and you say by anecdote, I've heard a bunch of those anecdotes too. And at a certain point, you have enough anecdotes, yeah. you start getting data. And it does seem like yeah. that's, that's kind of the reality of things. Mm -hmm. Have you talked to Judge Duncan at all since he got escorted away? Yeah, I mean, we a small group got dinner with him that evening. Okay. Um, and I, I know he was really rattled by it, less in like a personal sense, okay. but more in a sort of like eschatological sense. Like, right. What does this mean for the legal profession if this is Stanford Law School? And what he kept saying was, you know, I went to a law school in Louisiana, and Stanford was supposed to be a better law school. Yeah. And really hard to believe that these people are going to be 
the top lawyers running all the big firms that are going to be the general counsels of the big companies that are going to be the judges that are going to be the elected uh, member of the legislature. I mean, boy, boy, things don't look good. That's where it's headed. So and I, um, I remember years ago, Ann Coulter was saying, you know, they, they were asking her where she got the most trouble. And she said, well, actually, she says, you know, the Ivy Leagues and, and the top ranked schools, usually I don't have problems with. They'll actually interact with me rationally and reasonably. She goes, it, it's really, it's it's the the less prestigious schools where I have the most trouble. I haven't heard her talk about this recently, but I think she heard, probably her tune would change because we are now seeing all this happening at Stanford and Aaron Sabarium's covering Yale. I had him on you know, a while ago talking about Yale Law School. I, I think it probably hasn't changed um, for the undergrads at a place like Stanford because you know the undergrad is so much bigger and you still have to figure out what you're doing next. And they have this sort of goofy grade inflation where like everyone has like a 4.0 GPA, but you know, some people have a 4.4 GPA. Yeah. So people are, you know, you have all these try hard kids, so they do still make an effort. I think, you know, something very sick that's happened at uh, Stanford Law and Yale Law. I mean, the exception is business school, right? Like I went to Stanford Business School, the grades are sort of imaginary. Um, but the whole point of it is sort of being in relation and being socialized networks so people behave. But then you have these law schools, and they combine something that's very cutthroat. You know, there only are so many great clerkships. There only are so many great whatever. Um, the attitude is not one of collaboration with the grades are kind of fake. And then I think that sort of breeds a particular kind of toxicity. Uh, and it, it's sort of imagine like there are a certain number of Supreme Court clerkships, but there are like 160 people graduating from Stanford Law School. It actually turns out that like if their if their maximum ambition were getting a, an appellate clerkship, basically everybody could do that, right? And, and people do have enough different interests that they can do different things. So there isn't really competition, but it's set up to feel like there's competition, okay. and so people are just incredibly mean, and the points are all fake. It's almost like whose line is it anyway? I don't know if you've, yeah. you've seen that show. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it seemed like Stanford itself, after this event, had a pretty good reaction. I mean, the the. The, the dean of Stanford, the the law school, came out and you know apologized to the judge. She released this long statement, mm -hmm. uh, basically denouncing uh, the the protesters or the rioters. I mean, you could call it a riot, I guess, at, a, at yeah. the point that it reached. Um, she also said she wouldn't go after any of them individually, which I, I'm curious mm -hmm. to get your thoughts on that. But what, what, how did you feel about the the universities and the law school's overall response? Yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, first, I. I do notice that the first letter that comes out three days after this event is from her and the president of the university. So I'm not really sure what happens in the background, but it's sort of striking that it comes from both of them, not just her. Uh, the long statement, a really good statement, right? It's a really good piece of writing. Um, I used to be her TA, so I know she's a really good writer. And she's really smart. but. Does she have the support of the faculty and of the university to actually carry this through, right? Because, and, and what, and carry this through to its purported endpoint. Like, do I think she has the support to have like a one-day re-education or whatever that's as they're going to do? Yeah, but that may be a completely made-up thing, right? And and Stanford has sort of a history, and not to go into now, but like a history of sort of catastrophic efforts at uh, ideological inclusion. So. Will this actually work? I'm not sure. I think what's strikingly absent in that letter uh, are the things that would really change this, and that would be proactive hiring of more conservative faculty 
and administrators. Uh, you know, you have six originals on the Supreme Court. You have one on the faculty of Stanford Law School. That's probably a bad sign. Uh, so, you know, if, if you were proactive in hiring a diverse faculty, uh, an ideological diverse, ideologically diverse faculty, students wouldn't only encounter ideas that are different from the sort of theological norm of Stanford Law School uh, when a judge shows up. They would just have that as part of their study, and I think that would make things a lot better. Um, also, the administration, you know, very overlooked. The administrators are mostly fine people, but that's not really the point. It's, there does seem to be an ideology that was used in selecting who would be administrators of the law school, and that's probably not, not quite ideal. You probably want a mix of perspectives and sort of uh, philosophical commitments. If Stanford wanted you as a professor, would you take that job? Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, but I think I would take the job, you know, just as I can go on Docker because I'm like, uh, you know, not going to a big law firm. Right. I could be a professor because I don't have a family. Yeah. Right. Like I, I could just, I could do several years of just working my ass off and basically people being mean to me. And that's what it would be. I think if you are someone at the point in your career, where you actually would be in any danger of being hired by Stanford. You probably have a family, you certainly have a partner, uh, and you're like, okay, you know, are, will my partner and I have friends among the other faculty? Well, we will have one obvious friend among the other faculty. It's unclear of it anymore. Uh, you say, you know, will, will my kids enjoy growing up here in this community? Maybe not. Um, do I want to spend 20 years with these people? Probably not, right? So. You know, that's sort of a, a different thing. Yeah, they, they talk about you know the golden handcuffs when it comes to getting these high-paying jobs at law firms or any high-paying job. And they usually they refer to it in the sense of you get this high-paying job, you buy an expensive house, you buy expensive cars, and now you're stuck. You have to maintain this lifestyle and keep that high-paying job. But it's also you're, you're handcuffed in, in what you can say. You're afraid to, to step yeah. out of line. And, and like you said, if, if you have a particular perspective, you can say whatever you want. But if you're, if you're on the right, you step slightly out right. of line, and now you're under this microscope. And so it, it, you're right that I think it does take people who are willing to say no to those golden handcuffs and say, I'd rather be free and take the hit financially, but have that freedom to say and do what, what I want to do. And that's – I. That's kind of the advice when people ask me, they're thinking about going to law school and and what should they be considering, what schools and, and financial aid and all that sort of thing. I always say, take the option that lets you be most free. And that's the that's some mm. combination of not going into debt and also going to a school that gives you a lot of career options. And I don't know, I don't I don't, I don't know if I've done the right thing. I don't always think I'm a bad person to give any kind of career advice. But if someone asks you that question, how would you answer? If, if they're thinking about going to law school, would you just say don't do it? Would you are there is there a particular way they should be thinking about it? I think it really depends on what they want out of life, right? And where they are in life. I think that we much too we're much too hesitant to focus on the other things that make a good life. Like where is your family? What do you want? of your family. Are you in a relationship, right? We see a lot of relationships sort of crash and burn on uh, 1L, right? Okay. And and so I think, you know, who do you want to be? What do you want to be? Who are the people you love and care about? Um, that should shape where you go to law school. If you're like me, like I was several years ago and you're single, you can go anywhere. Um, you know, you might as well go to the best law school you get into right? Uh, the debt's sort of imaginary, right? Like even, you know, even assuming we actually are going to pay federal student loans at some point, uh, there are these very generous, in theory, we'll, we'll find out next year when I try to use it, uh, 
private public interest forgiveness that the law school does um, that are better than the federal programs. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if there's a reason you want to do it and it sort of fits with what you want from life, go for it. Awesome. Tim Rosenberger, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for being able to, to speak up. You know, like we said, it's not an easy thing to do. And, and it takes just it takes making life decisions to put yourself in that position to be able to to speak openly. Anything else you want to say? Anything anywhere you want to direct anyone? Sure. I mean, you can find me on Twitter, Tim JRJR. I'd love to talk with anyone, particularly students who are thinking about law school. Um, don't just go somewhere you think you'll be safe or comfortable. Go somewhere where you can really be in the fight and make a difference. Uh, these top law schools, Stanford and Yale now being the top law schools, uh, shape who gets tenure at law schools all across the country. They shape what happens in our courts all across the country. They shape what law is all across the country in a way that very few schools uh, can. So come here, be in the fight, and you will find a community of great people.